The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the stocks discussed. For a full list of current recommendations and stocks owned by staff, members of Intelligent Investor can visit www.intelligentinvestor.com.au. Welcome to Stock Tech. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is analyst James Carla. Welcome, James. Good morning. We're also joined by analyst Alex Hughes. G'day, Alex. G'day, Gaurav. G'day, James. G'day. So, gents, um, Alex, you've got a little baby in the house. How are you doing with uh, with a little <laughs> with a new little pet? <laughs> um, I am working through it. It's been a huge change working from home. Um, there's been yeah. a, there's a few new noises to contend with. Um, but yeah, for the most part, getting through it. And you got you got nothing. If you had complained about it, I would have been very upset because you've got this is the easiest part. Those first couple of months, they don't do very much. No, no, the easiest part is when they get into double figures and start loading the dishwasher. I'm a long way from that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do have my five year old on all sorts of house duties. I got him. Um, I bought him new new gloves for outside work. He was complaining the other day that the sticks I made him pick up were too sharp. Yeah. <laughs> And I made him, made him hop and do it on one leg while he picked the sticks up. <laughs> so I got the drill sergeant going really well. Good work. Yes, that's right. So let it be known. If any of you mess up, it's going to be one leg and sharp sticks for, for everyone all around. Yeah. Yes. If now, my teenagers Jen, misbehave, I'll send them over. Oh, yeah, do that as well. Could after after the lockdown. The mess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the baby's a bit too young, Alex. I might keep that one with you. Yep. I, I think I can save that for future years. Nice one. Yeah, good. Uh, right, gents, we're getting towards, I've heard it said that we're now towards the end of the isolation period. Officially, a few restrictions have eased. The first isolation period. Oh, yeah, good the point. The initial yeah. isolation period. <laughs> that, that's right. Um, but and the possibly mar- the only, who knows? Well, yes, but but we'll, we'll get to that. But um, the market is now up quite a bit. Um, it looks as though investors have responded to a virus outcome that's probably the best that could have been predicted for Australia. I th- I from the, by some measures, we're actually in bull market territory already. But what happens now? Um, JC, maybe we can start with you. We've still got a very lengthy buy list. Um, it seems to me there's still a healthy amount of opportunities on the market, even though prices have bounced off their lows. Is this a period where we should still be allocating money or are you doing what most people I talk to are doing and just sitting and waiting for a second down leg? Well, I'm pretty much all in now, to be honest. So uh, I'm just waiting. If I had more cash, then I might do some more buying, but I'm pretty very much, you know, I'm swapping one for something else, you know, at the moment. If if, if something gets crucially, uh, uh, it, you know, if I'm desperate to buy something, I've got to sell something really. Yeah. Um but uh, I think that the thing that I noticed about your your introduction there is that when you said that we're I can't remember how you put it, but I I think that we're I mean look we're this is going to be a long road and we're only a few steps down it. I think that's the it, people seem to be thinking, and the market maybe is even discounting that we've kind of got through this and we're coming out the other end. But you know we still don't even know if we're going to get a vaccine. Um, and at the moment, there's no immunity in the, in the country. There's a few cases. We're coming up to winter. Um, you know, we, we, we've been very fortunate or we've done very well or a combination of both uh, to get where we are. You know, the health service hasn't been overwhelmed as it has in other places and all that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's good so far. But, you know, so far, like I say, is I think only a few steps down the road. So, um you know, I think people need to be aware that while they're sort of lifting a few restrictions, like, you know, open house inspections and uh, auctions of properties and stuff like that, public auctions um, in New South Wales anyway, um, uh, you know, a few other restrictions obviously being lifted. Um, I I think people got to have in mind that, um, you know, there's there's there are great risks that um, the thing could start transmitting again more widely. Do you agree that um, it seems to me that the, Market has been much more selective about what to what it deserves recovery and what deserves to be kept down. It, it seems those heavily hit areas are still very low. So flight center well, and, and yeah. winter and all of that they're they're still they're, they're still relatively um, uh, cheap. 
you know, looking at. I, th- I think that's um, I think that's highly rational. I think that's yeah. uh, that was I was actually. I mean, I was thinking about this because one of our things is thinking aloud, and I was thinking about that as maybe being a thinking aloud for later because, um, you know, it's very easy to think in terms of oh, look, this could still be very bad, so the whole market should shouldn't be bouncing, right. you know, yeah. um, and to think in terms of the whole market doing this and the whole market doing that. But there are this is a very unusual situation. This is not like a big depression at, at, the, at this stage anyway you know there, there are certain stocks um you know the zeros of this world which really shouldn't be greatly affected you would think um you know a lot of the tech online the googles you know a lot of a lot of stocks uh zooms doubled <laughs> you know there are a lot of stocks which are actually not in such a terrible place but then there are the travel stocks and you know um some of the specialist retailers who you know, this is this is life or death. You know, yeah. so um, you know that there, there, there really is a very very wide range of of outcomes for individual stocks, and it's entirely appropriate that some are barely budged and some are on their knees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex, how about you? Um, you you've perhaps been um, a, a bit more more cautious, I suppose, than than JC has over the course of this. Is has the bounce been for you um, something worrying, something rational? Is this a time to continue feeding money, or are you waiting? Um, I guess I'd agree with James's assessment. I think it's a case by case basis. You know, so some stocks have done very well in terms of recovery, and, and some haven't, and that just really depends on their situation. Um, I, I, I would agree that cautious is still my approach. I, I think the government support has helped many businesses, and I think I'm, I'm not sure how long that will last for. And, and I think at some point, many businesses are going to have to start to stand on their own two feet again, and you know, and that that could increase another wave of capital raisings and, and things like that and um, so that so that's certainly on my mind I think um, you know I'm, I'm not sort of I haven't done much in the last month or, or since we last talked I've, I've really just been assessing new businesses trying to build my knowledge and just watching from the sidelines and um, you know it, it would take me to get um, high conviction in a, in a new name or an existing name to put money to work and I've found that um, the, I've struggled to find obvious things to do. So um, my activity has certainly slowed down since we last talked. It certainly seems to be the consensus that it's a, it's a long road. They were at the beginning of it and recovery is going to be difficult. But I put it to you, and actually I, I, I add, by the way, that I think that's a very rational expectation. Um, I'm not probably not quite there myself. I'm probably a bit more optimistic um, than others. And I, 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 take, I bring to your attention, gentlemen, um, some, some of the retail data that's been coming out. It's been quite extraordinary. So almost any retailer with an online presence is recording pretty healthy sales. JB Hi-Fi's numbers yesterday were um, pretty astounding. I, I, all my, I mean, I was genuinely quite surprised by them. And yes, I know there's this, there's this um, tailwind of everyone working from home and going out and buying equipment. But you can match that with Adairs, um, with um, what's, what's that... Um, a Temple and Webster, that that uh, you know, the website that sells furniture. Any any retail, uh, uh, anything with retail online, is doing extremely well. Well, it makes me think yeah. that maybe it's not people aren't that worried that they're closing their wallets. They're just they're just changing the way they buy things, and that actually should should speak quite well to how people are getting through this and how they're feeling. They're still confident enough to spend money. Yeah, I mean, I think people are, are spending money on. People are still are still living, and we still need bits and bobs i mean we still need towels and home furnishings and i think people are taking the opportunity to to maybe you know do a bit of work in their house and buying a bit of new furniture and online you know i, I reckon ikea is probably doing quite well um so we're still spending some money but there are there are sections of of the economy that are just shut down and and that's i think the problem i mean no one's you know, no, no one's going to concerts. They look yeah. a long way off. No one's going to sporting events, and all these things contribute the, the, to the travel, to the to the yeah. you know the the food, the whatever, whatever. When you get there, restaurants and pubs are still closed. You know, the, the tourism um, is a is a massive thing. Um, so there are, you know, I think look, you know, if you're in the right area and you're supplying things that people still need for their daily lives in their homes, um, then you, you'd probably be fine. I mean, the supermarkets are the, the most obvious example. I actually um, think about. I actually think about um, flipping that around. I think most people are probably um, going to come out of this in, in, you know, in survivable shape. Except, I would say the the people who are really going to struggle. It's, it's it's a targeted subset of the economy that's going to really struggle. And most of the economy um, would probably come out of this um, uh, surviving. You know, it's not not 
not too bad. Not even probably recessionary is is my guess. Just looking at some of these numbers coming out, they're pretty good. Even the property market. I mean, domains update suggested that uh, that things are reasonably reasonably good, um, and property analysts are getting a bit more a little bit less um, bearish about how the market might um, might turn out in all this. Um, the banks um, are still pretty cautious, but you'd get, you'd probably want them to be given what their business is and. Um, some a company like Tyro, which actually monitors um, SME business transactions, they they're providing uh, weekly transaction summaries, and those summaries are, are way better than I would have thought, um, and and that's showing that people are still spending money. Alex, what are your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, in Tyro, Tyro's case, I think it's the transactional volume is only down about forty percent or so, which which is quite amazing given the categories that they actually Agreed. service. Yeah, I mean, yeah. retail is, is a key category for them. And um, they're talking about, uh, yeah, uh, credit card transactions through retail. I thought that would have been way down, and it's just not. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, hospitality as well is another big one for Tyro. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I agree with most of what you said. I think everything happens at the margin, you know, so the majority of people still have a job and, you know, they're going to spend money on certain things. And, you know, that may have shifted to the things that are in front of them at the moment, so fixing the house and, um, you know, improving their living situation um, at, at the present time, um, but but there are people that are really affected by this, and so their their spending is going to fall, and that and that's going to have flow-on effects. So, yeah, I think it's just really hard to generalize as it, as it normally is. So you just really need to drill down into into that business um, and what the drivers are for that business, and, and just try to understand that. Um, you know, just speaking. Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Um, speaking anecdotally to lots of people that I know, and admittedly, you know, most people I know are in professions. So they're, um, you know, um, doc- lawyers, accountants, um, uh, doctors, and, and finance people. So people who can, um, you know, who probably won't lose their jobs over this. But almost everyone I know personally is actually, um, their balance sheet's actually improving because they're just not spending money. Um and um, well, for me, but you know, I mean, childcare is it was my biggest expense, and that's no longer an expense. And I mean, yeah, you, there's a huge subset of the economy that's really struggling. That hospitality sector, um, that's going to be difficult. And as James said, the the entertainment um, um, area, that's going to be really difficult. But other parts of the economy are actually improving um, household balance sheets, um, savings, and uh, is probably um, up. You know, um, I, I think. We, we, there's a there's a risk here that people just get too pessimistic, and they extrapolate poor sectors, poorly performing sectors throughout the rest of the economy. JC? Yeah, but I, well, yeah, I mean, I think you, I think some of that is true, but you know, it, it as Alex says, it's at the margins. You only need you know a, a really bad recession just looks like a few percent off GDP um, on an annualized basis, doesn't it? And I mean, look, we're on a we're we're a lot more than that at the moment, of course, but there's going to be. A, sudden bounce back but how much how much of you know gdp we lose sort of for a year or two is another question and you know it only needs to be a few percent for it to be quite an ugly situation Mm. um and and then you've got i mean look because it just affects confidence and all those things and um uh just sorry hold on i forgot my other thread um you've also got to think about um you know how much money the government is spending to support the economy and at the moment we're seeing a lot of that money come in and so mm. maybe that's affecting retail sales mm. um but that money it doesn't just come from a money tree you know we, we that's going to have to be hang on uh, are you saying there's no such thing as a money tree <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm afraid well oh, actually no. i don't know the, as long as it, the, the, there's the inflation tree i mean you know so if the, if the government ends up spending too much money it can mm. al- always uh, inflate it away down mm. the track but um, that's not an ideal solution either. So, look, I think that at the moment, yeah, I'd be cautious about those things. I think that, um, look, we've only been locked down for a couple of months. If this is all it is, then that's fine. But I, my, my concern is that, you know, we, we, we're we coming into winter and if we see more cases and if we have to lock down again, then it could be could be many months. Um, yeah. I just and, want to jump that, on. Oh, sorry, James. No, that, that assumption that governments can create inflation, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a macro discussion, but I think that's a lot harder for governments to do than we probably give credit for. You know, mm. look at the economies around the world where they've died for, where they've really wanted to have inflation and they've just, they just haven't been able to ignite well, it. Well, but they haven't, they haven't wanted it that much, have they? I mean, uh, you know, Ben Bernanke talked about his helicopter and I haven't seen any big money helicopters flying around. Um, you know, I mean, the, 
you know, the, the, ultimately governments, except for in Europe, they can print their own money, you know, <laughs> so they can just print a whole heap more of it and then it really will inflate, you know. So um, I think, uh, well, that's my understanding of economics. <laughs> it's not not my uh, strong suit, probably. <laughs> All right, let's, let's bring this back to business a little bit. Alex, I've got a question uh, for you. Um, something I think is quite difficult right now is how to capture um, a very large but short-term change in valuations. Um, so a lot of businesses, I'm thinking the ones that I've been looking at are things like the casinos or hotel groups. They're going to get zero or close to zero revenue for maybe 12 months, maybe more than that. But they're long-lived assets that have decades of cash flow. Now, in a discounted cash flow model, you'd probably say that the first couple of years don't add very much to the total valuation, but they do impact the share price a lot. Would you? How would you think about um, short-term, very large changes in revenue in your and capturing that in valuation? Um, do you? Is that an opportunity, or is is that quite is that scary the way most people tell us it is? No, I think that can be a huge source of opportunity. I, I try to break it down into two parts. The first part is the solvency question. You know, can this business actually survive to the other side to the point where they have revenue and profits again? Um, and so that's the sort of the phase that we're at now where businesses are addressing that either by getting new debt facilities or extending the existing facilities they have or by raising equity capital from investors. Um, so once you pass that question, then you get to the valuation question and you know, that requires an assumption about how long it'll take for revenue to recover and and ultimately how much money will they make and how much money will the company make and, and when will the company make it. Um, so that's the do sort those of questions. Do those questions matter? Do you, do you really try and figure out when revenue will return or do you just sort of, I mean, what I did with, um, so I own um, Auckland Airports, for example, and I don't know when revenue will resume, but I know that it's a long-lived asset and um, you know the the capital raises really um, help the balance sheet and um, you know all all that and and so I, I was happy closing my eyes and buying a little bit. Um, do, I, think, that... I think you can do that in a panic, but I don't think you yeah. can do that now. Right. I think you need you need, you need to understand the, a, a range of scenarios that could play out and how that would influence the valuation. So you're not necessarily trying to pinpoint anything, but you need to understand what the situation looks like if it takes three years, for instance, for hmm. traffic to get back to some some resemblance of normality but for okay. something like Auckland Airport um, I think trying to answer that question when revenue is going to start again that's a solvency question not a valuation question you know because you know if it's six months or, or a year two years or three years you know has has big implications to whether it needs to raise money and mm. I, I guess that feeds through into the valuation but the the I suppose that you know the enterprise value of the asset um isn't really sensitive, as you just said, to the early years um, of cash flow. The the what the, the provisos I'd make to that is that um, it depends a bit on on your interest rate, so the discount rate you use. So when interest rates, when you're plugging a ten percent discount rate into your to your model, then the early years are relatively more important. Right now, with interest rates as low as they are, and long term interest rates as low as they are. Um, you know, these models, the, the value of, of future cash flows is much greater relative yeah. to the next year or two. And the other thing is is the growth. of So grow, growing companies where you think that the future cash flow is going to be much larger than uh, this year or next year anyway, um, obviously, you know, 10 years from now matters much more in your, in your valuation. So um, which is another reason why a lot of these tech companies, which are growing quickly, um, you know things like Altiums and Zeros um, uh, have actually held up much better because you know the, the next year or two really matters not a lot for them, especially with interest rates where they are. And that's probably a little bit where Auckland Airport finds itself, isn't it? I mean, mm. uh, you know, with its development potential, um, you know, and and with long term growth uh, in in air traffic, um, you know, you'd expect uh, you'd expect reasonable growth from it over the years. So the next year or two doesn't matter too greatly for valuation except for the fact that if it has to raise um, capital and and so far it's been able to raise it reasonably you know not, not too dilutive um, the, the, the threat is that um, is that you suddenly have to raise uh, uh, you know dilutive capital hmm. so I mean you you've had to deal with this exercise yourself JC with something like um, webjet which is at the coal face of all these troubles have you I know intellectually that's um, 
that's all correct. But uh, emotionally, it's quite hard to to buy into a stock where you know the um, the revenue profile is going to be close to zero for as a period of time. How do you? Well, I don't, I don't think I don't think it's hard at all. I, I think um, well, you have to make a, a judgment. I mean, with Webjet, it needs to start making proper EBITDA. By proper, I mean something resembling the past um, by uh, the June quarter next year. Um, in order to to meet because it hasn't well unless it gets another covenant waiver for June next year, mm-hmm. um, so you've got to decide whether people are going to be going to hotels um, really by then. Um, well, that's for the web business. Um, you know, for the web jet business, you want people to be making um, you know uh, international travel essentially. So, um, so but that's a solvency question, you know. So you you sort of. Um, make a judgment about that. But in terms of the valuation, um, with a business like that, I'm just trying to think, I think you've just got to, where you've got these sort of short-term, massively profound short-term events, you've got to take yourself a few years forward, think what's going to happen. So with the first sort of clean year, I'm hoping it's going to be the sort of 22 year. Um, and so you take yourself forward to 2022 and, and think what sort of money it can earn and what growth profile it might have from then on. Um, and that's your valuation, and then and then you've got to just try to decide what are the odds of of actually getting there, uh, and and so that you, you you then feed that into a sort of probabilistic, uh, um, you know, weighted expectation. So yeah. if you if you think there's a half a chance that the company goes bust, then you perhaps knock half off your off your valuation. I think my method of closing my eyes and just buying is is easier. well back quality if you back quality and buy companies that don't have any of these issues then uh then um you know you don't have to worry about it so much but if you but if you're buying companies that are threatened with solvency then uh, i think it's probably quite a good idea to to you know have some sort of idea of the probabilities around that alex have you found that hard that the the psychology of buying something that you know is going to have um sort of zero revenue for a period of time versus your rational mind telling you that it's a valuable asset? Um, no, I, I think I'm willing to buy something with zero revenue. Um, I, I just need conviction and the competitive advantage of the business to do so. You know, um, like we, we talked about Ordinate last time, and that's one where the revenue picture looked, you know, quite challenged in the near term, but the confidence and the competitive advantage allows you to make, um, you know, make a, an investment there. So, um yeah, I, I I don't struggle with the psychology aspect with that at all. Um, I just find it interesting, like talking about the travel space, though. It's it's been interesting for me to see the I guess the four major players. So there's Flight Center, Webjet, Corporate Travel, and then Hello World, and how each of them have, have responded to this crisis. And um, obviously, Flight Center and Webjet have already raised capital, and that kind of reflects their working capital positions and some of the fixed costs they have in the business. Um, but some of the, the other two haven't raised capital and Hello World to me looks to be in a position where it could actually muddle through without raising capital and that's that's due to the fact that it has a franchise model so that lease liability largely sits with the franchisee um, and its its balance sheet was just in a better position than um, Webjet or Flight Centers was as well so that's just going back to that you know case-by-case basis argument um, you could get the same exposure to Webjet in a business like this, um, but you're potentially doing so with lower um, capital raising risk in the near term. Um, so I suppose just to add to James's um, points about how to consider a business like Webjet, there's also the opportunity cost of what else is out there as well. And I think, you know, when you get close to that final decision of making investment, you need to start to consider, you know, is this the best source of my money or is there actually something else out there that's better and, um, you know, that would be a, more worthy addition to the portfolio. Does, the does Hello World not have to support its franchisees? I'm just interested to to hear because someone's got to be bearing that pain, right? So, well, I if, think it's um, a taxpayer at this point. It's it's been this fascinating situation. Oh, I see, because they're all on, they're all getting sort of furlough support, are they? Or yeah, that's right. So the the job seeker payments and and things like that. So I think you know they've asked for rent reductions or rent holidays. Okay, okay but that or... doesn't last. That doesn't last forever, though, does it? So as you, that's what you said earlier on. By <laughs> you know that's going to roll off at some point, and then they're going to be further questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, this is what I'm trying to understand in my head is you know, the government has kind of underwritten everything at the moment. And I think that's why we haven't seen as many capital raisings as we probably would have normally. 
Um, but the government, like how long is that going to last from the government? And when that starts to roll off, that's that may be when we see the true economics of everything coming to the fore. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, is, I, I is think... Hello World down a lot? Is it what, is it discounting a raising? Do you think? Yeah, it is. It's fallen. It's fallen oh, 70 percent. I think. I, I think it's interesting how this whole period can also be a source of um, of competitive opportunity as well. Uh, I've been pretty impressed with the way Flight Center very quickly just um, turned around, basically turned around its business model. It's closing a whole lot of stores. Um, and that probably would have taken them years to do, but probably needed to be done. And they're doing that in a very short period of time. And they can use all the available government support to, to speed that up a little bit. And Alex, do you think that actually, um, that pivot that Flight Center is making, does that make businesses like corporate travel more threatened? Uh, my, my, my guess is Flight Center is going to have to focus more on that corporate market and um, and it's going to have to compete more uh, head on with with corporate travel. It, um, I mean, that's just one example, but the competitive positions of lots of different businesses are going to change. And you know, you you did mention before that uh, you know you're trying to assess these positions. It seems a very difficult task. How are you approaching that? Yeah, it really is. I, I find flight center very difficult at the moment because I think you've got the coronavirus impacts, which is you know hugely challenging to understand to start with. But then you've also got some sort of long term structural questions. You know, you've got this huge bricks and mortar um, network, and that, and that involves lots of leases. And I think. Ultimately, they want to get out of that, and it's, it's good to see them using this opportunity to do that in part. Um, but what that business actually looks like in five to ten years' time, I, I really struggle with. So that's that makes Flight Centre difficult for me. Um, but, you know, so I, I tend to, you know, that's probably what led me more to Webjet because I, I believe in, in, you know, the online channels more so than the fixed or well, the physical channels. And I, you know, I think they've got, um, well, with their bed banking business, they've got um, better long-term potential there. Um, but I mean, how that relates to the corporate travel side um, with corporate travel management, um, I'm not, I'm not entirely clear on that. I, I, I mean, you know, there's lots of competitors enter, entering that space. There's businesses yeah. like Circo that are also providing solutions and, you know, there was Booking Holdings recently invested in, in them, which shows that the big platforms are also interested in getting into the corporate travel space as well. So, so yeah, I'm unsure is the answer to your question. It's definitely getting harder, isn't it? Um, that actually brings us on to um, a, a useful point, I think. Um, JC, coming out of this, there's going to be lots of behaviours that permanently change. And we've, uh, you know, we've kind of talked about some of these before. Um, what do you think? What's at the front of your mind, JC, about some of the things that are going to be completely different that might permanently change, and and how do they impact um, your investments? Well, I, I'm I'm not a one for permanent change, really. I don't I don't believe in too much <laughs> of that. We're we're pretty habitual sort of uh, animals. I don't think. Um, hmm. Look, I think first of all, we there's a big big distinction here between if we get a vaccine that's effective. Yeah. Or if we don't get a vaccine, or perhaps in the middle we get a sort of vaccine that sort of works for a bit. Well, I suppose if it works for a bit and we get a t- to take it every year, then that's that's not too bad. Um, but, uh, you know, look, if we get a vaccine, then the whole thing just disappears and everything's fine. Um, if we can't get a vaccine um, or, or, or an effective treatment, I mean, an effective treatment's a long way behind a vaccine in terms of dealing with this. If we don't get a, a vaccine, then, look, we've got to live with it. And living with it... Just, um, I think it's more likely to result in people's expectations of, of of life expectancy being reduced, rather than people. I mean, you've got to decide. You know, is society as a whole going to prefer to have ten years knocked off life expectancies, or never to go to a Boxing Day test again? You know, and I think, um, you know, people will would accept the. The, the slightly shorter life expectancy ultimately people aren't going to stop going to concerts and going to you know gyms and cinemas and people you know because well apart from the fact that you know up below the age of 60 at this point it looks like 
I say 60 because I'm in my 50s. <laughs> below, <laughs> below the age of 50, anyway, yeah, you're, you're not a great deal of risk. So I think most people are just going to carry on oh, as normal, going to pubs and things. And, you know, that's even without a vaccine. If you get a vaccine, the whole thing is just forget about it. Let me, let, let me um, challenge you a little bit, JC. So um, cinemas, for example, I think are, are a really interesting point. I love cinema. I would always choose to go to a cinema over watching it on my piddly screen. But there's been a few movie releases over the, the course of the of the shutdowns, and some of them have been enormous successes. There was one kids' film released, and I was reading that it made about $150 million just through um, downloads, or streaming downloads. That's about that's the equivalent of a pretty decent decent box office open without any of the cost of doing that. That surely must threaten the cinema model. A lot of movies may choose to just open direct to um, streaming rather than going through the whole cinema channel. Well, yeah, I suppose I suppose I suppose that's right. So if it's supply driven rather than demand, I mean, I well, yeah. well, look, if if that's where they make the most money, I suppose is the point. But look, people. Um, you know that that was already the case six months ago that you could you could stream a movie. Um, I suppose you had to wait a few months for it to be out on on you know uh, mm. at home before before you watched it. Um, but you know you go to the cinema, you get a, a bigger screen than I've got in my house anyway, um, and you get, I find uh, that you, hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> and and better sound quality as well. And uh, you know, and apart from the person eating the popcorn next to you, you know, you get a better you know the sound is uh, or the so, person um, puffing a Cuban next to you. Yeah, well, so um, look, I think the cinema experience is is something else, you know. Um, I guess and, my point uh, really was that um, there's a lot of businesses that are just trying things during the lockdown that they would not have experimented with. So, but they've got uh, no choice. I mean, they've yeah. got no choice. But that, that's I mean, the, and, and once they've tried them, um, they can evaluate the success and that might very quickly change old ways of doing things. I put cinemas in that category. I'm actually going to throw out... Um, gyms like i i wonder whether gyms are going to come back the way they were but you, you i think you've got to go it's not just it's not just the individual thing though it's not just is this but you know can i exercise at home or do i have to go to a gym um you know it's it's a social aspect as well people want to go where there are other people people you know cinema too you can sit at home and watch a movie or you can go somewhere where there's a bit of a buzz and there's mm. people around and you interact with a couple of people and you get stroppy with the person with the popcorn and you know there's you know people like to have that interaction. I, I can't see humans uh, stopping that. On, on pretty much, for, I mean, look, if this thing was killing twenty percent of people, you know, from children upwards, then you know we'd all be locked up forever. I mean, you know, but I mean, I think as as it stands. You know, the, the people aren't going to change habits, I don't think, long term. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's a reason why gyms' walls are lined with mirrors. You know, people that go to gyms, you know, in part, they like to showboat. You know, they, they like to show off their muscles to other people. You know, that's there's, there are secondary motives um, which drives people to do things. So, you know. Alex, is your, is your lounge room filled with mirrors as well? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Um, and I, I don't go to gym. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, so I, I agree with James on that. I mean, think of, say, like a fancy hotel. Um, you know, there might be a doorman there, and you, you, the primary motive for a doorman might be to help you with your bags, but the, the sort of the secondary motive might be to signal to people that this is a fancy hotel, you know, and that's why the, the hotel pays for that doorman. Um, so the, I think there's, there's, a, there's a series of things... Um, which go into why people do things. And so I think socialising is a, is a huge element. And I think many of us are just hanging out to get back to doing things with other people. And so all of these sort of stargazing comments about how much the world is going to change, I'm, I'm quite sceptical of because I think, I think for the most part, things, things are going to return to how they were once, if, you know, assuming we get back to normal fairly quickly. And I, th I think where things do change, though, I mean... You see some businesses have their customer acquisition costs fall dramatically as a result of coronavirus. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when when we've all been forced to find new ways of doing things, um, you know, that might create all this free traffic to a business. You know, think of Jumbo Interactive in Australia as an obvious example. You know, if people can't go to news agents, they're forced to find an online channel to buy lottery tickets. And so that means Tats and Jumbo are the only two options there. And you know, whether that has a lasting benefit to Jumbo depends on their customer retention. 
And so I think the, the real winners out of all of this is, is when they've got some sort of lock on the customer or if that proposition is actually just much better than, um, you know, the, the, the normal way of doing things. And, you know, everyone talks about Zoom, you know, Zoom got all this free traffic, which ordinarily they'd have to market and advertise to get those eyeballs. But all these people have joined and the true test is going forward is, is whether they stick around. And so businesses like Zoom that have a network effect um, are, are probably going to hang on to lots of users and they'll be the, the real winners out of a situation like coronavirus. See, I, I hear what you guys are saying, but I must say, I, I think people um, are also very habitual, but when you change the habits, they're slow to change back. And I, w- I wonder whether offices are going to be as 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 full, as full as they used to be. You know, I think a lot more people are going to be working from home. People have invested in um, working from home infrastructure. Uh, corporates have set up um, all these meeting equipments, huge screens, microphones, etc. I'd be surprised if corporate travel even goes back to where it was, um, you know, a year ago. Um, I think um, the hotel businesses, uh, sorry, the um, that uh, that be that that um, what's it called? The Airbnb business, I think that that is, um, you know, I'd be surprised. I'm not going to go to stay in some weird person's house anymore, you know. Um, well, you might if there was no pandemic. I mean, if there, if there was no COVID in, uh, and we had a vaccine against COVID and there was no pandemic going on. I see, I, I don't, I'm not sure about that. I just think it's it's raised awareness for me about um, hygiene and, and and how clean everything is. So I, I'm not going – so I wash my hands far more now than I ever used to. I don't think I'm going to go back to washing my hands with my old regularity. I'm, I'm probably on this new schedule for, for hand washing. Um, and, well, and that's same... fine. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 look, I hear what you're saying as well. I mean, in terms of off, uh, work, home working, I think, um, I mean, maybe it depends how productive everyone is. I mean, uh, if, if businesses are looking at productivity and see that there's a big slump, they're going to get people back in the office as soon as they can. Um, mm. I think, uh, look, I think there are trends that, that you know, the home, um, sorry, the, you know, online shopping and um, and home working are trends that were already in place. And, and I think certainly this could give them a bit of a bump. Um, and I suppose that there was probably a bit of a trend towards people um, watching movies at home rather than going to the cinema because everyone's got much better TVs now and all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, so, look, there are some trends which will probably accelerate. But I think that, that wholesale changes to behavior, I think, are unlikely. Except Alex getting mirrors in his lounge room. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a wholesale change, all right. <laughs> JC, you recently wrote up REA and Domain, um, which, yeah, we've, we've talked in the past about REA possibly being, um, if not the best, and certainly among the best businesses in Australia. Among, um, I think is among. Fair. Okay, yeah. I think I think I actually had it as my as the single best business in Australia. But yeah, I think the rest of the team had it yeah. among. So we'll keep it that way. <laughs> um, these have been really resilient in past downturns. Um, is that proving to be the case at the moment? Uh, hard to say. I mean, we 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 got to wait and see how it plays out. I mean, uh, at the moment, they they are. I suppose. I mean. Um, they, when you say resilient in the past, I mean, their earnings have kept marching onwards. I mean, I'm thinking of REA particularly. Um, but that really is a reflection of the sort of uh, the, the underlying sort of growth tailwind that they've got. Um, and so if you do get a bit of a downturn, you know, that just moderates a bit. You don't really see them going backwards too much. Um I think that right now you will see them going backwards. So does that mean they're resilient? They're resilient because, um, or REA particularly, and this is what I said in the article, is is resilient because it's got such a huge margin. So it can lose a fair bit of revenue um, and still be uh, making positive cash flows. Um, mm-hmm. It's also got a strong balance sheet. Um, it's got no working capital, negative working capital to unwind like the travel businesses. So, yeah, I mean, structurally, it's extremely resilient. I just, um, I just meant um, in, in the sense that um, it's not really exposed to house prices going up and down. It's really volumes, and volume should be much more stable than, than prices. So in that way, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It, should, it, it mean, shouldn't be as cyclical, you'd think. No, that's right. So, they, I mean, look, prices affect um, how many people want to sell their house, um, but they also affect how much people want to buy, <laughs> buy a house, I suppose. Um but the, I mean, at the moment, you've got this huge fall. We've had, they've had to deal with a huge fall in listings. 
Um, but it's interesting that in New South Wales and WA and Northern Territory, I think they, they've reopened public auctions and open house inspections. Um, and that just shows, I mean, before we're allowed to do a whole heap of other things, we're allowed to go around and shop for houses. Mm, and that yeah. just shows you how much the government is, is desperate to have a functioning housing market, yeah. which I think is sensible. I mean, I think you really need to have that in an economy. Um, so how long will listings be down? Ultimately, if you've got to sell your house, I mean, the mortgage, um, uh, so uh, bank support for borrowers uh, may, may delay people having to sell houses. Um, but, you know, ultimately, there'll be people who want to sell their house. Um, there'll be people who need to buy a house. And, uh, you know, ultimately, they're going to get that done. I would expect that a lot of the listings that, that are currently not going up will be deferred to future periods. Alex, how do you think about these two? Are these um, strong, resilient business for you? Or is there more cyclicality here than, than you think we've seen so far? Yeah, I, I think they are resilient businesses, especially REA. Um, the, the one thing that I'm interested to follow through this cycle is what happens with domain, because as I understand it, most people see REA Group as, as sort of the primary place for their property to be listed. And they also get encouraged by the real estate agent to also list it on domain. But if, if there's tighter margins, you know, if, if property prices are, are a bit soft and, and there isn't as great a gain um, when selling the house, do property sellers actually start advertising on one platform for a period? Um, you know, which which domain would be the main um, uh, player to to lose from a situation like that? Um, so that's that's probably where I'm, I'm most interested in following. Um, I think REA is is obviously the stronger of the two. You know, it's it's got higher market share. It gets um, much more of its traffic um, from free sources. You know, direct users or organic search. Um, domain has to work much harder to get both supply and demand, so it's always going to have inferior margins, and I think it's it's always going to be more cyclical as a result. Um, but I'm I'm really just interested to see if if it feels the the effects of this to a greater extent, and if if REA can actually capitalise on that. Interested to hear your thoughts on that, James. Well, I think you're exactly right. I think a rising tide, you know, lifts all boats and all that sort of thing. Right now, the tide's going out, and uh, you know, the stronger player. Um, is is the the you know the one that comes through these weaker periods? The weaker periods sort of demonstrate the strengths of the stronger player. Um, so uh, you know, in the past, we've sort of argued for a, a slight premium in in domains valuations. Strangely enough, despite it being the number two, because it has you know more to gain in terms of yield and and maybe margin improvement and that sort of thing um but i think that um you know what we've seen over and and of course the listing environment was pretty poor for the last 12 months before coronavirus anyway and so through that and now um we're really seeing the benefits of the the higher quality business i think and has it changed your uh, mind about domain james would you cuz i know that has ever since domain listed that was the view that there was a catch-up opportunity for for domain margins could probably rise further than uh, you know from a low base than they could for REA. So you'd you'd pay up for that growth. But it, I, I don't I struggle to see why you'd buy domain over REA on on any day of the week. Um, well, I think it comes down to price, doesn't it? So yeah. I, look, I think domain is is still a fine business. I think it's not quite as fine a business as REA, um, and I think that uh, I would therefore pay a little bit more relative to this year's earnings and next year's earnings for REA. But, you know, uh, remember that these are both highly priced businesses. They're, they're on mm. something like, you know, most of 30 times, uh, a bit more than 30 times, I think, 2022 earnings for Domain, which is a really <laughs> high price. I know, James. Um, 30 is the new 20. Uh, yeah, well, maybe. But, uh, you know, the, you know, I, I think if, if at the right price, um, domain is 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 a good business to buy i think there's also an argument for holding both because the biggest risk to rea is that uh domain eats some of its right. lunch to coin a phrase mm-hmm. um and uh you know you could uh um you know you could remove that risk a bit by by having both of them so i think there's an argument for that um but for me in terms of relative valuation i'd, I'd pay a little bit more for rea Right. Okay. And um, just remind us what the uh, recos are on both those stocks. Oh well, they're both holds. Okay. Alex, do you own any of those? Any in- interest in in one of, or two or two of them? 
Uh, no, I don't own them. I'd, I'd be interested in REA. I think it makes sense to buy the market leader here. If, if you want to hold a business for 20 years, I think, I think I'd buy REA and I think it, it should do better over time. Just, you know, being the market leader, it should be less cyclical. Um, it should be able to capitalize on its strength and, and that should flow into higher margins over time. Um, I mean, I'd consider domain at a sufficiently low price, but I'd, to me, it, it's not there at the moment. Um, I should add, by the way, that I do own REA, just as a disclosure, um, yeah. which I bought last year um, at around the current buy price. So that just so um, that sort of hopefully mm. explains why, why you know, the, the whole recommendation, as it were, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. James, while I've got you, I've got a question. Do you think it's complacency from the property vendor's standpoint um, as to why they actually advertise on both platforms? Are they just encouraged by the real estate agent and they just go along with that? Or do you think they actually get a benefit from advertising on both platforms? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I suppose, I mean, look, it is something I've thought about, but I've never really got to an answer. Um, perhaps what it does is highlight the small cost of, of advertising yes. on the platforms relative to the overall marketing cost of a house. If you're paying you know, 30, whatever, plus grand to sell your house, you know, a few grand uh, to, to cover all bases is probably going to be the thing to do, isn't it? So, mm. and, you know, the, the, the REA and domain are str- stronger than, you know, one, one stronger than the other in different sort of regions as well. I suppose in regions, you know, where domain is weaker, you might not. And that's possibly, you know, the point mm. and why it's number two. Mm. Um but if you've uh, you've got a big, you know, multi-million-dollar home in uh, in a, a you know a big capital city, uh, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, so I, I, I sold uh, my I sold my house about two years ago, or maybe three years ago actually now, and um, and I asked my agent this exact thing: Do I need to advertise on both? And he suggested strongly to do REA and domain. They cost about three grand each um, to advertise on um, from memory. And, and that cost, uh, that cost to you. yeah, 100% of that cost is passed on to me. Um, he said, um, you have to do both. He said, he said, don't even bother doing, there's a whole plethora of um, free sites. Um, I don't even know the names of any of them. He said there's about 10. And well, he says, not, the obvious one, yeah. uh, there's a whole lot of specialist ones. I think one's called like uh, Open Door. There's a whole heap of them. Um, yeah, and he yeah. said, don't even bother with those. It's um, not necessary. But he said, you've got to advertise on, on both. And I thought that was quite interesting because I was keen not to do domain. I only wanted to do REA. Um, but, but you know, he, he pointed but out exactly S- Sydney, your you've point. got to do domain, yeah. I mean, uh, because it's relatively strong here. So well, um, I think as, if you're a buyer, you're, you're checking kind of both. But, anyway, but he said to me that, um, that um, you know, for if you're buying or buying property in or selling property in Sydney, then then what's three grand against your property value? You know, you'd... Um, so I think that argument gets, um, you know, James, you, you said it highlights the um, the discrepancy between the cost and the value that these things generate. Um, mm. Yeah, got firsthand experience with that. Completely agree. Which is which is part of the bull case, of course, for for both. Yeah. Yes, both, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. Because when you when you think of the agent's incentive as well, they've got an incentive to sell the property quickly, and the fact that you're yep. paying for the advertising costs across both. Oh yeah. Well, they have subscriptions as well, so they pay fees as well, um, and then you know there are additional costs for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess most people trust their agents and go with both platforms. It helps mm. faster sale for the agent, um, and that cost is, is small overall relative to the um, the cost of listing a property. Interestingly, um, he also said that he 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 suggested I consider um, uh, the local um, paper as well. And I kind of laughed at him saying, why would I do that? <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, there's lots of um, old people where you live and they probably still use the paper. So I looked into the cost of it. The cost of advertising, just a normal property ad in the local paper was five grand for a normal ad. And the, the wow. platform and the platforms were three grand. I just are, think yeah. that tells you a lot about pricing power. everything you need yeah. to know, doesn't it, about, about yeah. <laughs> old media, really. But also it shows how much potential, how much latent pricing power those platforms still have. I think they could add another zero almost um, to, to that. And, you, you, you'd, you know, you'd probably get fewer people advertising, but you wouldn't, you know, you'd still be making good money. Yeah, I'm not, not sure about another zero, but they certainly have the, the tailwinds that have got them this far are still blowing. Well, to, blowing to add the other zero, you'd have to displace the um, you'd have to displace the agent. Um, 
Yeah, which is, which is basically. Yeah, I'm not sure you'd want to pay that to both of them, but anyway, let's. Yeah, I think we're getting 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 caught up. Yeah. So, Alex, just just to summarize, you don't hold REA, but you're interested. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, very interested. Okay, and uh, JC, it's currently a hold for us and uh, ongoing coverage, so we'll we'll write something in due course. Yeah, well, we just wrote something last week, so not, not too soon. All right, all right not but, too uh, soon. In due course, yeah. Okay, on to our final segment, thinking aloud. We're going to make a little amendment um, for lockdown. Um, not we, we've traditionally said, um, you know, you can uh, talk about anything you want, but. I think it's interesting now to introduce recommendations as well. So if you've if you've read something, seen something, or heard something that's worthwhile, uh, I want to hear it. So JC, let's start with you. Okay. Well, I'm going for the heard uh, option, um, and I should say at the I outset, somehow I thought you would, given your your oh, obsession well. with their heard immunity and all. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah. So look, I'm always cautious about recommending music because uh, oh, no. <laughs> people, people tend to like what they like and, you know, don't like to be pushed into things. But uh, <laughs> I've been listening to uh, Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations, which look, a lot of people listening, I'm sure, are very familiar with them, but uh, they can just switch off. And, well, go and listen to that. Um, but for those that are unaware, it's uh it's a series of variations on a theme. It starts off with a, a somewhat melancholic sort of theme and then responds um with reflections variations on that theme um which uh elgar said were well he had, i mean he, he stipulated each of which are his friends he said which friend um and they're they're sort of reflections on the theme and they're sort of they reflect their their characters um so it, it's kind of a sort of series of uh 14 um uh musical portraits and they're rather beautiful in themselves but it just um i just thought in the time of lockdown it was quite interesting we couldn't have um if you can't have your you know your friends at home you you can at least have a few of of elgars um hey, JC, everyone do, sorry can do do you need do you need a written accompaniment to sort of get to well he he did write yeah so some music um you know they they write program notes they're called and he did write program notes for this and so right. he says he, he lists the initials of each of his friends is the name of each variation hmm. um although actually the most famous is is called Nimrod so not not initials um which is the ninth which everyone will have heard um I won't hum it for you <laughs> um but it's it's absolutely stunning Nimrod if if all you do is go and listen to that then uh, then then uh, you should but um but uh it, it's uh I should say that the, the enigma is also uh, it's called a, the, the enigma because there's a theme apparently another theme hidden within that which isn't actually played so the the enigma the theme is itself a variation on a uh, on an underlying theme, which is apparently a very famous sort of well-known tune. Um, and everyone's been arguing ever since it was published in 1890 or something at first, but uh, what, what that underlying theme might be. Um, uh, I think Rule Britannia is um, considered a hot favorite, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's just rather beautiful music and uh, they're just rather amusing portraits. I, I think, I think you do gain by going online and looking at the program notes to see, mm what they're trying to, what, what, you know, who he's trying to reflect, you know, his wife's in there and Nimrod is about his publisher, um, a guy called Jaeger, which is um, the German for hunter, which is why Nimrod, who is a hunting god or something. Um, anyway, he, he, uh, he, he um, was very encouraging to him anyway. And uh, when he, when Elgar was very down, um, he came around and encouraged him and, um, uh, to write more and all that, and and, and it's it's very um, sort of uplifting uh, piece of music, Nimrod particularly, but the whole uh, the whole variations is 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 a delight. So if anyone wants something to, it's only about forty minutes. I was going to ask how long. Okay, is is that forty minutes each portrait or forty? No, minutes no, no. Minutes? Each each each. Um, they range from about thirty seconds to. Oh, okay, right. Nimrod's six minutes, I think, and then the finale. So actually, it's it's thirteen variations, I think, and then the finale. So the finale is. Um, is about six months. Anyway, look, it's uh, it's extremely jolly. So there you go. right, okay. I, I did not expect that at all, James. I have to say, nice one. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I've actually been watching something on Netflix. That I thought was was just amazing. I've been watching that Michael Jordan documentary. I think it's called um, The Last Dance. Um, my wife's a sports fan, which is uh, my life's greatest lament because 
I've got really nothing to add about sports, but so she's kind of forced me into watching this. And um, I did it reluctantly until the first 10 minutes just completely sucked me in. And I think for people interested in business and investing, there's a lot to like in this series because it documents the rise of the Chicago Bulls. It's not just about one basketball player. It's about um, an entire franchise and how it was made successful, what it takes to make a sports team successful, all the behind the scenes machinations, all the other elements that have to work to get a very successful and, and profitable sports franchise up and running and how that's changed over time. It's um, it's fantastic. It's one of the the best docos I've seen in a very long time. So I highly recommend it. It's called... What's it called again? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Called <laughs> the la- it's called The Last Dance. Right. And uh, particularly Sounds- particularly interesting for... Um, for people into business and investing and I have no interest in sport and very little in basketball, but I still am enthralled by this. So uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. Um, I highly recommend it. Alex, you've seen it? Yeah, I have. I, I can second that. It's fascinating. It's, uh, it's yeah. a great watch. I thought you might have actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you got for us? I, uh, I feel like a bit of a boring investment nerd um, to finish, but I actually last night watched a YouTube series with Chris Judd, um, the AFL player. I understand um, he's got he's got two. One's called Talk Your Book, and one's called Masters of the Market. And he gets on a series of investment guests onto his YouTube channel and talks to them about investing. And the one that I saw last night was with an investment banker by the name of David Williams. Um, you may know him as the founder of Kidder Williams, which is an investment bank here in Australia. Um, he's someone that I'd actually never come across, um, and I don't normally watch investment bankers, but he, he told a, a fascinating story about medical developments, which um, I think you wrote up recently, James. I did. I was a bit, bit negative on it. What, did he like it? Um, well, he, he was the investment banker behind its float, and it was a fascinating story. So he, he actually found the business. It was a, a private business, and it was making a million dollars pre-tax um, and he was able to negotiate um, the purchase of that for $10 million subject, and this is the key point, subject to due diligence and financing. Um, and so then he went off and, f- and talked to all of his fund manager friends and organized an IPO of the business for $16 million. Um, and so he got them to chip in the $10 million, which went to the original vendor of the business, um, floated the business for $16 million and he came away with a 38% stake without putting in any, any money. Oh my um, goodness. And he's done right. it with a, a handful of deals. I think Tassel, the, um, is it the salmon business on the ASX? Um, he, he also did it with that. Um, so, mm. you know, the, the, the punchline here is that, you know, uh, medical developments is now three quarters of a billion dollar business. And, you know, he's got a, a huge stake in that business without having to put in any money. So, yeah, pr- pretty nice work. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you've got the connections and the know how to do it. It's a it's a great gig, but you know, pretty inspiring yeah. to to watch and to see how other people create wealth and 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 inspirational in the sense of you know trying to be creative and how we think about businesses and and appreciate opportunities and you know if you can bring bring new thinking to a situation then you know perhaps you can do well do well out of it. So. Yeah, I thought. But he's uncovered some value. I mean, look, you've got to give him, and and the society needs people who can allocate capital and who can uncover value and make sure that the right companies get the right value. So, you know, hats off to him. That's what I say. I reckon the easiest way to make money is the that private public arbitrage. Just finding um, a private business and taking it public, you get an instant, probably tripling of the value of of that business. Jeez, I've seen. What, what are we all doing, guys? Come on! <laughs> <laughs> I've got an idea. Let's have a Zoom meeting after. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't describe it as easy. Maybe it's simple, but it, it's not easy. Well, it, it it's easy in that you don't have to do much. Um, you don't have to change the business and and you know find new customers and add revenue or anything like that. You just you, it's an instant valuation. But you've got to be able to isolate value, and you've got to be able to um, convince. You've got to be able to convince to, others to, to, to yeah to, yeah. So you've got to have the people. You've got people have got to have the faith in you and your you know. Look, I mean, there are various things you've got to be able to do. So. But you, you see this actually, if you want to, um, I, I think that there's a whole segment of the ASX that does essentially that is that roll up segment. Um, so I've been scathing of, of G8 education for years um, about that. All that business is, is it's a, um, it's set up to take advantage of public private arbitrage. It buys private businesses on two or three times EBITDA 
and it uh, rolls them up and and it gets them valued on public markets at sort of 10 12 times EBITDA and that's that's the entire business model there's no synergies there's no brand to build there's no shared you know there's no there's, there's a head office cost and that's about it but and there's a whole segment of the ASX that just does that you know bankers have a very specific task so this 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 criticism is not really for bankers but if you're an ASX listed business and all you're doing is public private arbitrage I don't really want any part. Well, you're sort of creating economies of scale in a business. You're sort of I, creating a, well, I suppose. I think you're being very putting, generous. You're putting uh, things together, consolidating an industry, making uh, making uh, the economy more efficient. I well, mean, I think there's, there's, there's. Well, I don't think there's, there will be any points for I'm consolidation. I'm trying to be kind. <laughs> for its own sake. Yeah, I think you're being um, very generous. Yeah, for but, me, it's, uh, what it's I people who've who figured out how to, how to game something and uh, are fooling others into Tell us again, uh, Alex, how we find this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it a podcast uh, or is it a YouTube channel, is it? Yeah, it's YouTube. Oh, what was it? YouTube. Oh, it's YouTube. Uh, yep. So just look up uh, Talk Ya Book um, or Masters of the Market. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. And and it's, and it's Williams, David Williams, do you say? David Williams, yep. Yeah, right. Hmm. Great. Interesting. Nice one, Alex. That's good. All right. Okay, well, um, let's let's leave it there, Jones. Thanks very much for your time today, Alex. Um, good to have you on, and we'll have you on again. Yeah, thanks, guys. Great to chat. Yeah. And uh, JC, as always, thanks for your time today. As always, cheers. Uh, everyone else, thank you for listening.